Hello and welcome. We are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. Thank you for joining us. My name is Nate Huss and I am stoked you are tuning in to our teaching of the week. If you are new, so glad you found us. If you haven't already and would like to learn a little bit more about us, jump over to restorationaz.org. All right, let's grab our Bibles and dive into this week's teaching. Thank you for that lovely introduction. So it's great to be with you as a church family. I see many friends here. Um, it's, fun to, it's fun to be in Prescott where uh, the, ch- the church families uh, intersect quite a bit. So yeah, I, I am blessed to be here um, to talk to you today about that. Um, I don't talk to you from a standpoint of I got this, right? Humble is how, how everyone thinks of me and my family. Nope, that's not how people think of me. And so I come to you as a fellow sojourner with you on this topic. Um, had quite a few humbling experiences while preparing this talk. So uh, God has a good sense of humor and uh, loves us very much. But I want to start with saying that We're doing this because Jesus is taking students. He's inviting us into the master's class of kingdom living so that we could learn from him how to live life in the kingdom. And that requires us to arrive as students, ready to learn, ready to reconsider, ready to think about those things. And so I want to just encourage you with that today Uh, that that's what we're doing here. We're learning from Jesus how to walk in his kingdom. I love the the, the practices, emphasis of this church. What a a beautiful way to emphasize that, that we're not merely heads, but we're hearts and hands, and we have a body and uh, and relationships that need to be dealt with. And so I want to maybe take a a different look at D and Reconstruction um, this morning. So would you join me in praying and asking God to, to teach us? So Father, I thank you for the honor and privilege it is to be the one standing here to share with my brothers and sisters and friends and neighbors what you and I have been talking about with regards to this topic and how your word instructs us in this way. So We ask that you come and be our teacher. Holy Spirit, we need your wisdom. And I ask that you come and enlighten us and help us to take something away from this that changes us and makes us more into the image of your son. We love you. We praise you. Jesus, thank you that we know that you're here with us too. You told us you'd always be with us. So we embrace that reality as we begin. In Jesus' name, amen. So in my role as headmaster, from time to time, I receive letters from former students or from students themselves of the summertime or even just during the school year, I get a conversation with a student. And I've had several of these kinds of conversations over the years that go something like this. There's one such uh, letter that came to me about 13 years ago. Dear Mr. Maestri, my brother just finished high school and is now in his first or he's in his he's in his first year of college and he's begun reading some philosophy 
And now he's taking pleasure, he has abandoned his faith, and he's taking pleasure in beating up those of us who are still in the youth group with his newfound love of Nietzsche, or Kant, or Foucault. You name the, name the philosopher, and he's, they're out there beating us up with it. So she came to me and brought me this letter, and, and I've had these kinds of conversations over the years, and so I said, well, can I write your brother a letter back? She said, sure. So I, don't, I won't read you the whole letter, but in essence, when a student or a person comes to me with this sort of thing, I say a few things. One, I say, I, let me invite you into a conversation. I would love to talk to you. I'd love to hear more about what you're thinking. Can we sit down and talk about that? Second thing I said to him was, move slowly. Move slowly. You've just arrived at some new concepts that you're trying to process, and your first response is to run and then start thinking that you've jumped, you've leapt into something that you don't even know what you've leapt into yet. So I encouraged him to move slowly. And the third thing I said to him, which might surprise you, is I said, congratulations. Congratulations. You have discovered something that we all discover at some point. And that is, in order to mature in our faith, we must reconsider things that we already believe. In order to grow in Christ, it it requires that from time to time, I bring my heart before God and say, this is what's going on, and I think I probably should rethink this. And so, what we find with those conversations is that it's really humility that is the hinge on which the turn from deconstruction to reconstruction can happen, or not. So if I enter into these conversations with humility, then I might have an opportunity to reconstruct. But if I enter into these conversations with pride, I'm more likely to just want to be right. Does this make sense? Yeah. I want to look at, uh, there's a, this story, these concepts of humility just came racing to my mind as I thought through King David. King David is, in, in the nation of Israel, he's at the top of his game. Prior to the, the story that we're about to, to embark upon, he is having this incredible interaction with God prior to this, a few chapters before, in which he says, God, I'm sitting in a castle and... You're, the Ark of the Covenant sits in a tent. I don't like that. I want you to have what I have. This isn't right. And God says, no, 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 it's okay. I've made my covenant with you. You are my anointed one for Israel forever. And in fact, your son will be the one that builds my house. And so David's like, okay, great. And he goes about his business. And then one day, David forgets, as we're apt to do. He forgets who he is, he forgets what's important, and he sees Bathsheba. And notice that David's abandonment of his faith posture is not intellectual, but it's actually experiential. It has more to do with his flesh, and I think that's a key for us to think about when we think about how to work with these situations. But so David sees Bathsheba bathing, And he says, wow, I want her as my wife. And he takes her into his house. And she she gets pregnant with a child. And so they think, well, what do we have to do? She already has a husband. We can't hide this anymore. 
David says, no problem, I got this. And he has Uriah, her husband, killed on the battlefield because he's the king and he can do that. And so David is there, he's got his, the, he's stolen a man's wife, he's killed her husband, and Nathan the prophet lovingly comes to knock on his door. And we pick that up in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Some of you are thinking, that's how I think of my dog too. So this is biblical, right? Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who'd come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan, in one of the most horrific lines in all of scripture, points his finger at David and says, you are that man. So now David has a choice, a choice that we're faced with often. He can say, no, 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 I'm a king. What are you talking about? Get out of my face. And he could even have Nathan killed. He could, he could say, oh, Nathan, that's not what I meant. That's not really the same thing. He could justify his sin. But he doesn't do that. He practices biblical humility. And he says, after Nathan lays out the charge, and the consequence for his sin, David utters one sentence. I have sinned against the Lord. And the angels rejoiced because the man was humbled and was willing to reconsider his actions. He was willing to deconstruct what he just built so that it could be reconstructed. And so we see this in this story that, again, humility is what determines whether or not we move from deconstruction to reconstruction. Or whether or not we just go on in our blindness. Put bluntly, the presence or absence of humility determines whether or not we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right? So in contrast to the young man who has taken one philosophy class and decided that he has all wisdom to beat up the youth group kids... He was, not, he was not seeking the truth. David wanted the truth even more than he wanted to be right. This young man wanted to be right more than he wanted the truth. Wanted to, wanted to feel powerful more than he wanted the truth. So here's a question for your prayer closet as we begin. How do I respond to correction or constructive criticism? Do I really want the truth in order to submit to it? 
Because truth is the sort of thing that requires submission in order for it to have power. I can ignore truth all day long. So as we look at the possibility of practicing deconstruction and reconstruction with our God and applying humility, the first question is, do I really want the truth? Or do I just want to be confirmed in what I already think or what I are, how I already live? I asked this question of a, of a woman that I spoke to this last week. I said, if I could convince you that the relationship you're in is sinful, that the biblical story is not one where you get to rewrite marriage and you as a woman get to go live with another woman and engage in that kind of relationship, if I could convince you that that was true and you actually believed it, would you then obey God? And she said, thankfully, yes, I believe I would. Okay, now we can have a conversation. So often people come to you with these objections or these, these concerns about your faith, but they're not actually seeking the truth. And so I find it a helpful question to ask them. If I could convince you that this is wrong, or if you could be convinced that this is the right way to see it, would you obey See, that goes below the head into the heart of what's really going on in a person. And I think that's an important thing for us to think about. When I think about biblical humility, the next person that comes to mind is John the Baptist. John the Baptist said two of the most humble sentences in all of scripture. He said, I am unworthy to untie the sandal of the one who comes after me. And at another time, he said, he must increase and I must decrease. Oh, I look at that and I think, what was going on in John that he had that figured out? And I think the key for him, that this reveals the second thing we ought to think with humility, biblically. And I, I, I want to express it this way. John was humble because John knew what story he was in. And John knew which character he was in the story and which character he wasn't. So what does that have to do with our newfound practice of deconstruction? May I suggest to you that as you engage in re-examining your beliefs, your heart, your actions, that you do so in such a way that you remember the character you are in the story and which story you're in. When we're wrestling with different challenges to our faith, when we are faced with something we don't understand, let's remember what story we're in. Let's remember that we're wrestling with a God who loves us, that we're not alone, that we have a body of Christ around us. We can go to other people who've probably been through something similar. We can Look to church history for answers to questions. Some of our modern answers in the church are just not that good, right? And it's not as if we just arrived, right? So let's remember the story we're in of God's people in redemptive history. Be patient when you come to a challenge in your life, in your faith, and in your experience with God. Be patient. Entrust yourself to God rather than 
I gotta understand this now or I'm out, right? Lean into the tension that God is showing you. Maybe there's a sin habit that you just can't beat. Maybe there's an experience in a relationship that just keeps showing up and you're thinking, maybe this is about me rather than them. Be patient, lean into it. Remember the story you're in. First Peter, Peter tells us after going through all kinds of experiences, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And in his time, he will be the one who exalts you. Let me show you what I mean. In John chapter six, this is, uh, this is a story I bring to my students often because I believe wholeheartedly that in order for our young people to not only survive our world, but begin to thrive in a walk and a life-giving relationship with Christ, we must compose our families, our churches, and our schools around places where kids can ask hard questions, say heretical things, and be given good answers, and be given an opportunity to talk and think about what they're considering. Not just shut down and told, you gotta believe this, just believe it. My granddaddy believed it, his granddaddy believed it, and that's why you should believe it. No, we gotta lean into these things. And so I see this in John chapter six. It's one of my favorite passages to bring students to. I'm gonna read it to you. John chapter six, verse 41. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He gave them lots of bread. They're talking about manna. What signs are you gonna give us, Jesus? There's a crowd of people who are so excited about the fact that Jesus is feeding them and healing them. And Jesus is not done. He's ready to teach them something even deeper. So the Jews grumbled about him. I'm picking up in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, don't you grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. And this is where it gets really interesting. They've been talking about manna. They've been fed bread from heaven, and Jesus goes, I am the bread of life. I, your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is turning a corner People are starting to stir in their seats. What did he just say? The bread is the flesh? Is your, f okay, so you guys putting this together? I'm gonna be eating Jesus? What's going on here? The Jews then begin to dispute among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And the crowd's going, I just came here for a snack. 
my uncle was healed. He told me to come see this guy, and now he's telling me I got to eat him. <laughs> what in the world? And Jesus continues, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Imagine just going down to the square and just preaching that. You guys, come on, we got to come eat Jesus. And they're thinking, what in the world? For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum and the parking lot filled up and people came, right? No, that's not what it says. It says this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. After this, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So all these people left. And Jesus turns to the 12 and says, are you going to leave also? And Peter said something that I've said to God a whole bunch of times. I'll give you the Kyle Meister version after we read the scripture. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter did not say, Okay, I, I got the whole flesh and blood thing. I, I know you're really talking about the idea that we need to take you in. And no, he didn't. He didn't. He said, "Where else are we going to go? Because we've come to know and believe that you're the Holy One of God, and you have the words of eternal life." What did Peter do? Peter did something I've done many times. He said something. This is the Kyle Meistry version of what Peter said. Jesus, I don't have any interest in eating you or drinking your blood. That just seems really weird. I don't understand anything you're talking about. Like, this doesn't make any sense to me, but I'm staying. Because I know that you're the one that I can trust. I know that you're the one who is the Holy One of God. So many times when I've hit those Red Sea moments in my life, as a headmaster of a school, building a school for 20 years, there have been many times when I've sat before God and said, please, I don't understand what I'm supposed to do next. There's been times as a father when my children are, I, I just don't know how to solve their problem. There's times in my own heart where I say, Father, I don't even know how to solve my own problems, much less theirs. But I've gone to Father and said, but I trust you. And so I think that through this we can see that when difficulty comes, hasty pride forgets and says, I'm out of here. I don't get it. 
I'm done, I'm finished, I'm running. And the person often takes a leap into something they've not considered, considered before they leapt. But patient humility, biblical humility says, okay, I don't know how to deal with this, but I trust you, Father. I trust this process with God to work things out in me. I remember what he's done and what story I'm now a part of. And I don't just leave all that behind and burn it down. But instead, I entrust myself to God or perhaps even abandon myself to God my Father because he's trustworthy. So humility brings to me the idea that trust leads over my need for understanding. It doesn't mean I abandon the need for understanding. It just means trust comes first. I choose to trust Father. I choose to practice Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So as we look deeper into the practice of deconstruction with humility. The second key question for you in your prayer closet this week is what parts of the story should I hold on to as I re-examine this belief or practice? What truths should I hold on to when I'm wrestling with God? And if you think about it, that just tells the truth about the kind of story we're in. We're not in a story where we get to know everything. We're not in a story where everything always makes sense. We're not in a story where we can explain away everything. We're in a story with a God who loves his people, who wants to have a relationship with us more than he wants to explain everything to us. And these young people who come to me and say, but I need this and this and this and this to understand Otherwise, I'm out. They're being impatient with their God. As a young person, I grew up in a very traumatic situation in my home. Lots of suffering. And I thank God that he brought people in my life who told me to slow down and didn't try to just explain away my life but actually sat down and had coffee and pizza and week after week after week opened the Bible and told me this true story of scripture, which is one where God draws near to his people. He doesn't stand apart and tell us about how it's all going down. He actually just comes and takes a seat with us. It's more important that we're connected to him than that we understand everything that's happening. Now again, please don't hear, I, I hear my students in my mind right now, please don't hear me saying, you don't have to understand it, just shut up and believe. That's not what I said, is it? What I said was, be patient, lean into the relationship and trust God to walk you through that as you walk through difficult things. So for the third aspect I wanna land on here of biblical humility, and perhaps even the most often referred to in scripture, is this attitude of service towards those around us. 
Jesus said in Matthew 23, but the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Paul said in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. So what does this third aspect of humility have to do with deconstruction? I think it's interesting to look at this two ways. If in humility I regard you as more important than me, then I've just discovered another motivation for me to practice deconstruction. In other words, my sanctification, my becoming holy, my walking with God in order to change isn't just a self-help book. It's not just about me. It's not just so I can experience certain things. Yes, do we get to experience things? Yes, Jesus told us, you will bear much fruit and your joy will be full. Is it to give glory to the Father? Yes, he says, you will, have, you will bring glory to my Father by bearing much fruit. But I think this practice of humility and deconstruction drives us to yet another piece, and that is my willingness to re-examine my own heart, my own beliefs, shows whether or not I love you. You might think that that's strange, but imagine this, this became very, very clear to me when I became a dad. When I became a dad and, became, and when, when I became a teacher of students. Because it turns out those little people around you are watching and listening to you. Right? It turns out the scary part is, so we, we spend our lives wanting people to listen to us. Would you just listen to me? Please, would you just? And then all of a sudden, there's these little people in your house that do. And that's terrifying. <laughs> right? So then you want to get it right. Jesus said, I came to you to show you the Father. I'm the same way with my children. My four girls, I want to show them what God is like. In order for me to do that, I have to continually practice deconstruction and reconstruction of my previously held beliefs and values with an attitude of humility that leads me to repentance. So it's in those relationships that we drive, our, we were driven to have another motivation. So you might, you might have sat here for the last week and now a half and said, well, this isn't really for me. No, it is. The world needs the church to practice repentance, to be purified in order to bear fruit for our king and for our father so that they would, be, they would know what he's like. When I hire teachers, the thing I'm most careful about is their relationship with Christ because my students do not need one more example in their life of somebody who abandons their faith or sidelines their family in the name of ministry. What they need is they need people who are willing to humbly come before God regularly and purify their hearts. There's this really interesting story, and I'll close with this. There's this really interesting story that um, Peter Schizero tells in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. If you haven't picked that up, put your seatbelt on and then go pick it up because it's, it's, it's a tough one. But it's so good. He says that when he, uh, when he was pastoring a church, 
His wife came to him one day. She said this. Oh, where'd I go? Forgive me. Well, I'll just summarize what she said. She came to him and she said, so he's a pastor of a church. The church is growing. She came to him and she said, you just lost a church member today. I'm tired of being a single mom. I'm tired of that being your mistress. And so I'm leaving your church. I quit your church today. I'm not going back. And Scazzaro just had this moment of like, what just happened? And he goes through the deconstruction process. And he realizes that he divorced knowledge about God with emotionally healthy engagement with God and his people. And I'm afraid many of us are doing that because we're unwilling to practice deconstruction. We're unwilling to practice this as a regular thing before our God. As a leader of an organization for 20 years, one of the most interesting and most humbling reflections for me is that when I'm dealing with a student who refuses to honor or obey, or when I'm dealing with a parent who is just tearing up the place, or when I'm dealing with a faculty member who won't grow, the issue is that they're self-deceived. They're blind. They won't see what everyone else sees. And so I'm humbled by that, saying, God, please show me the things that I need to see. I don't just point a finger at everyone else. I, I start here in my own heart and say, Father, would you... Would you teach me such that I won't get to the place that David did, where we forget what story we're in. We forget the goodness of God. We forget to obey and honor him. And so I would just encourage you to think about that as you engage this practice together as a church. But our willingness or unwillingness to practice and engage in deconstruction and reconstruction in the form of repentance as a regular practice shows the degree to which we actually love those around us or not. Let's not fool ourselves into thinking that we love God or we love others without being willing to have that moment where we go before God. So the key question here at the end is what do the conflicts in my closest relationships reveal about where I can start this process of deconstruction and reconstruction with my father who loves me? I'll read that one more time. What do the conflicts in my closest relationships reveal about where I can start this process of deconstruction and reconstruction with my father who loves me? The rising generations desperately need the church to be a people who are willing to say, that's a really good question. Let's talk about it. 
I'm not really sure. I've been thinking about it for a long time too. Instead of just faking and hiding behind all these platitudes, Romans 8.28, brother, I hated that as a kid. It's true that all things work together for the good to those who are called, but it's not helpful or loving to lob that at somebody who's suffering. It's better to say, come, let's talk. Let me introduce you. Let me lovingly introduce you to the one who knows the answers because I don't have all of them. So can we practice that? As I close here, I just want to show you something that's been helpful for me over the last few years, and that is to regularly practice going before God and praying the prayer of David in Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, David is modeling for us the prayer that we ought to pray more regularly. Notice I'm talking to believers. This isn't just for unbelievers. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Can we pray that prayer as we close our service? And ask the Spirit to lay that upon us as a practice. Not just a time at church, but as a practice. Search me, O God. And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to our teaching of the week. We are so grateful to partner with you in sharing the love of Jesus in a world that really deeply longs for it. And whether you're new here, seeking more information, looking for a church community, or considering financial partnership, go ahead and visit restorationaz.org for more details. Okay, let's continue making a difference together. So how do we do that? By remembering Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.